Namaste and welcome to the Bharat Vartha podcast. I'm Roshan Karyappa. Education is far too important to leave to the government alone, they say. And uh, today we have a couple of uh, social entrepreneurs who are striving to make a difference in this very important domain. We have the co-founders of Balutsav, Binu Verma and Ramesh Balasundram joining us on this podcast. Binu and Ramesh have uh, spent decades working to reform government schools in Karnataka and also enable uh, quality access to education for children. On this episode, we will cover some nuances of working within the education system in the country and what it will take to educate and prepare our children to be bright young citizens of Bharat. Uh, so without further ado, welcome uh, Binu and Ramesh. Thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. For you so much. Right. Uh, so maybe to begin things, uh, could you, you know, talk about the founding journey with Balutsav itself and what your mission is? Okay. So uh, this was the year 2009. When um, there was some data coming about uh, uh, the number of nonprofits in India, and uh, we were given to understand that back then we had about 3.3 million NGOs uh, in India. Uh, both of us still had a corporate job, and we were just in the brink of uh, quitting our corporate jobs to take a plunge into the sector. Uh, it, it was startling to first understand the number of nonprofits itself in the space. Two, um, so a simple back of the envelope calculation says that we've got about one NGO for every 400 people. And we said, wow, if we've got one NGO for 400 people, uh, why are all the problems still the way it is? Uh, so that's where the journey began. We started understanding the sector a little more, the complexities of it, uh, and uh, how problems were being solved. One of the reasons we realized that we had to uh, look at it slightly differently was because uh, we realized most of them are working with uh, issues after the problem has crept in and it's turned out to be quite a beast. We said, can we start working on tomorrow's problems today? And that can only happen by working with children. So, so that's, that's the context of starting to work with children. Uh, number two, predominantly when you look at it, um, when you say India and children, it's, it's usually about uh, children with torn clothes showing their ribs looking into the camera. We said uh, the the happiest moments of our lives were when we were all when we were children. So we said, can we get started off by actually celebrating childhood, taking up serious problems, uh, and uh, like you know, investing in a better tomorrow by working on it today? So that's that's where the whole idea came from. So Val would serve children celebration, uh, working on uh, tomorrow's problems today, um, and yeah. So that's that's like a quick uh, snippet. Wonderful. Of the right. Uh, Binu, could you talk about a few milestones and maybe uh, talk also about the programs that you run? Right. So uh, in 2009, as Ramesh mentioned, when we started, uh, Roshan, the whole idea was certainly to ensure that the children become the, uh, the agent of change. Right. And we are able to spread the word. Uh, uh, certainly uh, not only for them, but also to their families in whatever little education we want to impart through them. But then gradually uh, we realized uh, as like in 2009, we started working with the children of migrant laborers and uh, out of school children primarily, but there was, there was very little that we could do at the end of the day when it came to ensuring that there is a holistic education which is provided to them. 
right? Initially, yes, certainly we were, um, at the, in 2009 itself, we were able to uh, take back around 100 uh, odd students back to the school, as in they were out of school, but we were able to bring them back to the regular education. But that was a very small number that we were dealing with and we wanted to achieve much uh, larger numbers and impact more students and more children in the future. So. Um, Gradually, we decided that uh, the best way to approach is that we need to look at the government schools, the public education system, which is primarily uh, created to ensure that all the children can get free education in India to begin with. We are just taking India as an example over here. So we started working in government schools and uh, there were two flagship programs that we launched. One is the Sampunishala, uh, which is uh, for the students or for the government schools in urban areas. And uh, the second one is the Aishala for the students and the government schools in the rural parts of the country. Now, what is the difference uh, between these two uh, programs um, is, uh, and what are the areas and the verticals that we touch upon over here are that we look at revitalizing government schools. We look at remodeling government schools. And the four uh, pillars or the parameters that we look at here is infrastructure, uh, good quality infrastructure, rather I should say that, uh, hard and soft both, teacher development, scholarship for children, and wash, water sanitation and hygiene. So these were the four areas or pillars that we identified, which we strongly believe in that are the must-haves for the students who are going to the schools, specifically government schools. And simultaneously, when we started working on these areas and on, on these pillars, uh, which strengthen the government school, we realized that as we move away from urban uh, uh, or cities to the rural parts of the country, uh, the connectivity or the teacher-student ratio is something that was, a, uh, that was a concern for all of us. Therein, we started adding on the internet-enabled classroom for the students in the rural areas, and therein we call them as Aishalas, the two flagship programs wherein the four pillars is infrastructure, teacher development, scholarship, and WASH, plus internet-enabled classrooms is what we look at. So at this point in time, we have around 22 uh, Sampoon Shalas in uh, Bangalore and around 220 Aishalas across Karnataka. So that is something that we are working on and we are looking at enhancing it furthermore. So uh, that's going to be, uh, yeah, the two programs that we're working on at this point in time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's uh, wonderful to hear. Uh, and could you describe in brief the kind of impact that you've uh, seen over the last 10 years? Yeah, sure. So uh, what we look at, uh, Rachina, I'm going to step back a little to answer that. Uh, India has got about 15 lakh schools overall, uh, about 13 lakh schools. That's about 1.3 million schools are government schools. And the state of these schools itself leave much to be desired for. And that's where our interventions come into being. Right. Uh, what we started off with were three large goals. We said uh, in each of the schools that we operate, we wanted to ensure that there is an increase in enrollment. Uh, so the, the common notion is children are giving up their admission from government schools and moving to uh, private schools or low cost private schools. We wanted to arrest it. So we said one of the first pillars we'll work on is to ensure that there is an increase in the number of enrollment. Number two, a decrease in the attrition, which is the number of children leaving the school needs to come down. And three, if they're in school, it doesn't mean that they're learning. So we have to focus on ensuring that learning outcomes are monitored and they get better. So to your question, uh, we uh, stick our neck out 
uh, in, for each of our programs and commit to our supporters that we look at a minimum of 5% uh, increase in enrollment year on year, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's far higher because when you're talking of increasing enrollment, we are also uh, typically cutting down on the attrition in a large way. But uh, almost all schools that we are looking at uh, average between 7% to 19% increase in enrollment, right? So five is, is the bare minimum that we sign off on. But uh, on an average, you can look at close to 10 to 12% is the average across schools. The, the least we've had is 7%. The highest we've had is about 19%. Right. That's fantastic. Uh, since both of you have spent, uh, you know, many years in education, uh, I think we should definitely cover the nuances of operating in the domain, right? Uh, so, you know, you mentioned government schools and you work uh, uh, very closely with them, right? So uh, something like 65% or so of India students study in some kind of a government school. These include the KVs as well, right? So um, what are the challenges in general with public education in India uh, and specifically with government schools? Uh, it, it's it's a fairly complex uh, system, but I will start off by maybe giving you a heads up on a few things. One, um, what is the cost of a government school not functioning well? Around, right? Uh, is it possible that we can uh, get away with complacency? Is, is the start point, and and that's how most schools seem to have continued to work. Right. Uh, there are systemic problems, there are administrative challenges, but most importantly, the fact that we need to make a government school work and the price for not making it work is, uh, is, is how people are able to get away with. These are the three large blocks. So let's let's start off by looking at uh, the complexities per se. Number one, uh, the funding itself. So there is a lot of discussion. Um, uh, on how much we need to be spending. Uh, the, new, the new education policy, for example, has now uh, finally propagated that we need to spend about 6% of GDP. Uh, we are hovering between the 3.1 to 3.2% at this point of time. But uh, the bigger issue is the efficiency of the spending itself is a challenge, right? So it is not only about increasing the amount of spending, but ensuring that the efficiency of this is being spent. Close to about 90% of the money that's spent currently is going into salaries and pensions. Point number one. The second piece, therefore, is uh, with the amount of money that's left, uh, we seem to have taken a predominant approach of one size fits all. What is the total amount of money? What is the total number uh, of schools? And how do we make a more or less uh, simple back of the envelope calculation and make investments into the schools? Right. The need uh, is is much more uh, uh, targeted. It, it's, it needs to be a lot more detailed which means the necessity of a school with, let's say, uh, 50 children is very different from that of, let's say, 5,000 children. And um, the current format of using one-size-fits-all seems to be a bit of a challenge, point number one. Number two, um, have we identified the basics of what are the key ingredients to make a school successful? Right Now, when the Right to Education Act came in in 2010, the focus was purely on going out and building more schools. Uh, trust you me, we've not had a single mention of learning outcomes in the Right to Education Act the last time it was up there, right? Which means all that we were interested in is buildings, uh, classes, and never looked at, uh, at learning outcomes. I'm happy that the new NEP, uh, the new education policy is now talking about uh, elements of learning outcome and looking at comprehensive and continuous evaluation. But that's the second piece. There are structural problems. 
Number three, uh, the number of schools itself. So what had happened before the uh, uh, passing of the new education policy is we had schools in four slabs, what is known as classes one to five, five to eight, eight to 10, and 10 to 12. Structural problems I'm talking about. Early childhood education, which is what the rest of the world believes in, the rest of the world is investing very heavily in, uh, but we, were, we had zero intervention on early childhood education. Right to Education Act kicked in only from the age of six, which is typically class one, which means at least three, three and a half years of very important and integral um, early childhood education was lost. Number two, in these four slabs that we spoke about, one to five, five to eight, eight to 10, 10 to 12, the number of schools itself uh, going by uh, structural, structural or systemic problems had issues like, um, we said we need to have uh, a primary school that is classes one to five in a one kilometer radius, a class five to eight in a three kilometer radius, uh, the next segment uh, in a five kilometer radius and then a seven kilometer radius also meant that the funnel was basically shrinking. By, by design, we had a lot more primary schools compared to the number of upper primary schools, which was again, much higher than the number of high schools. So instead of the pipeline being intact, right? Uh, we started having an absolute funnel system. Now, for most of us who've gone in uh, and had a privileged education, you realize you get, went into a school, you had also mentioned about Kendra Vidyalias, for example, if the school had classes one to 10, and if a hundred of them got into class one, about 94, 95 of them get out of class 10, right? If the school has class 12, uh, about 94, 95% of them get out of class 12. But in a structured fashion where we are saying the system is put into bit-sized nuggets, uh, we are even talking of a structural problem where the number of schools are less and therefore the number of children are lower. To give you an example, for about 13 crore children in India who are in primary schools, classes one to five, we've got only about six crore children in the five to eight segment, right? So uh, there are a whole bunch of them, but structurally large challenges, design flaw about the number of schools per se, uh, funding that's just very inadequate, Three, not being able to invest in areas that actually help turn around learning outcomes. Right. Uh, so anything that has happened recently in terms of policy and so on, uh, or governance uh, that makes you a little more optimistic, I think uh, maybe Binu can chime in uh, here, uh, right? Uh, I think we spoke about the NEP, right? So uh, any uh, decisions that have been made recently that impacts uh, whatever you spoke about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, a, a, a very positive sign that we look at is that then clubbing the entire school, the ecosystem together. So it is not going to be compartmentalized uh, uh, schooling for the students. So it is not the same as first to eighth standard in one location and then uh, for a child to go on to the next level, they'll have to look at a different school or a premises altogether. So uh, that is what they're trying to do. They're trying to combine uh, the schools, the government schools per se, and bring it under one umbrella. So that is a ray of hope here. Yes, the continuity will be there for the students, right? The second is what they're certainly looking at is also the number of teacher-student ratio is, is, is something that needs to be uh, certainly looked at and NEP is uh, talking about it. So it, it and specifically there are uh, not only subject-wise uh, 
learning that needs to happen. But beyond that, if you're talking about sports, we're talking about extracurricular activities. So they're bringing in teachers and they're bringing it under a cluster. So if like, to give you an example, if there are around five to six schools in one area or, or in a ward, then all these four or five schools will be taken care of maybe like uh, by one sports teacher and every day the sports teacher will be moving in from one school to another so the child will not be uh, will be given a more uh, a space time and more uh, 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 time to go out and learn a new sport simultaneously music and certainly the education as i told you student teacher ratio is something that we are certainly looking at which will be a positive sign over there yeah to add to this i think the single most uh, uh, change that's welcome now is uh, NEP has now brought in children from the age of 3 to 18. Uh, initially, the Right to Education Act had it from 6 to 14. Uh, 6 to 14 basically meant children from classes 1 to 8. 8, uh, eight was a very odd year to get off. Now, uh, NEP has brought children from the age of 3 to 18. That is all the way from pre-primary education, that is when the child is 3 years of age, going all the way to 18 years of age, which is still class 12. Uh, it seems to have uh, put them into one capsule and that's a welcome change. Uh, something that we've been practicing in our schools for many, uh, uh, many years now, uh, that Binu was mentioning about, the, the ability to bring schools together and have shared resources uh, is, is a great, uh, great uh, win. We used to call them as uh, school clusters. Uh, like, you know, it's a group of class one to five, five uh, schools, a couple of five to eight schools and a few uh, eight to 10 schools all put together. Um, the new education policy is calling them as school complexes. The verbiage is different. The naming convention may be different, but I, I, I think it's a welcome sign to be able to bring them all together and uh, and use shared resources to get this done. Right, excellent. Uh, any perspectives on the fact that, you know, I mean, our education system is still sort of a relic from the industrial revolution era, right? I mean, we look at it as a one size fits all, uh, where you have a pipeline where, you know, every child passes out and then uh, it needs to develop certain amount of skills or whatever. Uh, I think the NEP also makes a point about vocational training and so on and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, any thoughts or perspectives on that? Uh, either of you could uh, speak. Uh, I, I mean, uh, happy to be speaking about this on Bharatvarta because I think that NEP really is uh, uh, bringing in a Bharatiya perspective to education and also has been drafted with Bharat in mind, right? Uh, for, a far, for far too long, we've been having India as the, as the go-to model. Uh, the Macaulay model was purely designed for a certain purpose. And uh, though we are talking of the NEP having come in 26 years later, uh, I, I think it's really about breaking the shackles of about 300 years of the Macaulay model uh, that we're finally uh, breaking away from and, and building uh, a policy for Bharat uh, as, as we go on to be the Vishwaguru. Excellent. Um, could you talk about some global benchmarks in terms of you know what other countries are doing to improve uh, infrastructure or all of the things that we mentioned? Sure. Uh, I, I'll be slightly um, hesitant to compare it out with any of the global uh, pieces because I think the India story is, is very, very different. Our Indian complexities are, are very, very different. Uh, so there isn't a simple model that we could take on from there and, and bring uh, over here. How, however, that said, uh, what we are now looking at building in clearly is a model where the children coming out of these schools and the systems that we are evolving will be uh, ready for a global audience. 
rather than looking at a global model across see uh, world over people keeps talking about the finland model people are discussing uh, specific state models that have been adopted but it's really about comparing chalk and cheese um, in, in this case and uh, for something as unique as education uh, for a model in india uh, that's inspired by uh, the indic uh, philosophy uh, i i think we really have to have our own mechanism uh, for a country that has uh, taken pride in having the nalandas of the world uh, I, i think we are finally starting to see a change in the way the graph was moving uh, to be able to arrest it and start putting together things right the fact that now we've started realizing that this is important that we're investing in schools uh, is a significant first step uh, there there are miles to go uh, but I, i think it's a significant first step that we've taken Right. No, that's a great point that you bring up. You know, oftentimes uh, uh, people bring up the Finland model, Finland schools, and all of those things. And I think we are so far removed from it, uh, from a cultural or even a logistical perspective, right? I mean, it's it's tough to uh, imagine, for instance, that you know we've got hundred million plus uh, people vaccinated, for instance, and still we have such a huge uh, uh, uphill battle, uh, right, uh, to uh, surpass. uh you know we mentioned uh, four different things right funding and infrastructure teacher student ratio and uh, community or the the wash uh, uh, um, acronym that you mentioned right hygiene and so on uh what would it take on each of these axes to make our government schools you know operationally excellent uh, and maybe you know if you could touch upon the teacher student ratio in terms of like you know what we can do to sort of uh, enable better uh, ratios on that front and so on right uh so, so at at last count we were short of about 1.2 million teachers uh nationally and uh, this is given the existing teacher student ratio that we are uh, that we are currently having right uh this student teacher ratio unfortunately is not a class to teacher ratio but a student to teacher ratio what that may mean especially in a lot of these smaller rural schools is you may have let's assume we are talking of a 1 is to 40 ratio for the sake of discussion this varies from state to state but 40 children may not necessarily be from the same standard i could have seven people in class 1 8 people in class 2 5 in class 3 all being assigned to the same teacher uh, in the same classroom right so teacher student ratio itself is is one huge exercise given the total number of teachers we need and the number of children we've got at hand but uh, if you get into the uh details of this uh even that is grossly uh, underestimated because we are still talking of uh, teacher to student and not teacher to class ratio right uh, what does it take to really move this around the role of teachers cannot be denied uh, they are the access uh, they are the gurus for the children in each of the schools and and the role of the teachers can't be done away with but there is an urgent need to be able to get uh, teachers uh, or or open opportunities uh positions that have not been filled for a while uh, we would like to see that get filled up soon number one number two uh, get teachers to move from teaching to facilitation because uh, what seems to have happened right now is with the advent of technology and a lot of uh, technology enabled interventions available in the children's hand uh, the child seems to have now picked up a lot of information already right which is publicly available and therefore the changing role of the teacher from being that of a teacher to that of a facilitator is uh, is important and urgent right to give you an example let's say when when you or i went to school uh, and they said hey we are going to learn about solar eclipse uh, a, a simple 
illustration of this on the on the blackboard of the sun, moon, and earth was sufficient for us, right? When we went into school. Today, when uh, the teacher wants to teach a concept like solar eclipse, we have a situation where the child has already gone online, uh, read about it, knew when was the last solar eclipse, when is the next solar eclipse, how long is it going to last, and therefore, when the teacher comes in to teach, uh, there is it, it is not information that is getting shared or, or, or moving from the teacher to the child. Uh, but, but typically the child knows all, all of this already and has more questions, right? So the role of uh, the traditional teacher-student ratio moving into making them more facilitative so that we're still uh, not uh, shutting away the child saying, hey, stop asking these questions, but encouraging them to continue to learn by the role of the teacher changing dynamically to more facilitation, I think is, is, a, is a very you know, important piece here. Right. Uh, so the other thing we notice, I mean, at least externally, what we feel is that the ecosystem is so complex, right? I mean, there are so many different uh, uh, stakeholders and everyone may not have the same sort of a priority, uh, right? So, uh, I mean, typically economically backward uh, families will want their students to be productive as soon as possible and education might be a bit of a luxury for them, right? Or school administrators and teachers might look at it as a job that they have to, you know, uh, again, do to put food on the table, uh, so on and so forth. And there are different sort of stakeholders in this and very complex ecosystem, right? So, Dino, uh, could you talk about like, you know, how you work with these different stakeholders and align their priorities in order to benefit children? Right. So, uh, Roshan, you rightly mentioned uh, food is uh, something that you cannot uh, exchange uh, uh, when it comes to a certain strata of uh, people. For them, certainly, if it is a family of four to five people and there are two, three kids who uh, can support the family by working um, in, in a nearby area, so they would, they would certainly prefer to do that. But again, it is about... Um, uh, uh, about engaging with the audience. It's, it's about going and speaking to them. It's about that community engagement. See, we proudly at Balitsa, we are really proud to uh, share this, that our engagement is, has never been only with a government school per se, or the teacher. It goes beyond that. It goes beyond a student, a teacher, and the principal of the school. It is about the community involvement as well, right? So uh, when we visit and area or when we visit a school or, or a community, our first point of contact are the parents and to ensure them and to tell them that, listen, education is as important as a meal on the table, right? So if you can, if the child can spare the first few hours at the school, that is certainly going to give them a leverage to move forward and help the child to reach a certain uh, strata in life, a certain place in life that can help then not only uh, it's not going to help a child educate himself or herself, but it is going to be that they'll be helping the next couple of generations also learn. So it is about that interaction on a day-to-day basis that helps us keep them motivated, right? Uh, certainly it is easy said than done, but since we have been doing it on ground and there has been an impact, there has been a very positive result that has come out um, we proudly state that the communities are looking forward, are forthcoming to support us in helping their children get educated at the end of the day. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, uh, education is a community exercise, right? In some sense, because you need an investment, positive investment from all of the members of the community uh, for children to uh, get educated. Like they say, I mean, it takes a village to raise a child, right? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm reminded of, uh, 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 you know, we had Sridhar Vembu on our uh, podcast sometime back and he spoke about the Zoho schools of learning uh, and they're actively doing all of these other things, right? Which go way beyond just the academic and curricular stuff. Uh, so that's great to hear. Uh, you know, Ramesh, you mentioned EdTech and uh, we, we see, you know, all of these uh, companies raising huge amount of money and doing uh, wonderful work in terms of, let's say, acquisitions. And it's a it's in the news that way, right? I mean, it's a hot sector and everything. How has EdTech uh, specifically impacted, let's say, the government school uh, education or the, um, let's say, you know, the Bharat uh, uh, um, the Bharat class of students, right? I mean, how has EdTech impacted them? If you could talk about the uh, Aishala program as well in a little more detail. Thanks. So uh, see the idea of model schools itself was only to be able to bring the best available resources from across the globe and make it possible inside a government school, right? The overall idea is whether it's a parent or the community, uh, it was to first be able to showcase to them that there is a possibility for a government school uh, to function this way and uh, for it to be a school of desire, right? Now, uh, uh, it, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting that there are some schools uh, in the country where parents stay up the whole night to go out and get an application form. Uh, there are some government schools where a politician still has a quota of how many letters he can write uh, to get an admission and he's always writing 10 to 12x the he or she is writing 10 to 10x or 12x the number of uh, uh, recommendation forms for a certain bunch of government schools and then on the other end of the spectrum we've got government schools here where uh, which which lack the overall imagination of what it can be so that's where we wanted to start off with the idea of a model school was we said the community, the parents, the teachers, the Department of Education should all start looking at the school and say, hey, you know what, I want to be in the school because I want to be there, not because I can't have it any other way, right? So point, point number one, how do we make this possible? We have uh, now forged partnerships with the best tech companies. Uh, we go by a mantra that uh, education, and this is going by our uh, uh, our own ancient wisdom that there are three segments that should not be monetized. Uh, one of this is education, the other one is food, and the third is hospitality. It's another fact that most of it is, uh, uh, the, these three turn out to be the biggest industries today. But our focus has always been that these schools uh, and education will not be monetized. So uh, through our programs, nobody gets to pay anything. How do we therefore make things happen? We forge partnership with the best providers in the country. We work with some of the leading um, or amongst the top edtech companies, get their services at little cost or no cost and make it available at the schools, right? So today, uh, if you could uh, name the top two or three uh, edtech companies in India, all their products are being used in our schools already, right? Uh, we said uh, it's only a matter of access to these children. So the children don't get to pay for it. We've been able to raise money uh, uh, through our supporter network. Uh, we've gotten deep discounting pricing from uh, some of the edtech companies, but we put that into schools and this then becomes an absolute opportunity for our children to be able to uh, enjoy the same quality, high quality content of uh, what most edtech companies are, are available, making uh, possible for a few uh, thousands or maybe uh, over a hundred thousand bucks uh, for free. Really, and 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 that's opening up absolute possibilities for the children in the remotest corners of uh, of Bharat. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing to hear. Uh, and you know, I've always believed that I think we will leapfrog institutions through technology. Uh, and it's really the you know tech innovation that will offer the last mile uh, service delivery in terms of uh, whether you know education or healthcare or, or any other uh, important thing, right? Uh, you know, on that note, uh, I mentioned in the introduction that some of these domains are too important to leave to the government alone, right? Uh, there has to be external involvement through NGOs, private sector, so on and so forth, right? Uh, and at the same time, there's a little bit of a concern in terms of their functioning. Uh, you know, there seems to be a lack of transparency in some of the uh, NGOs and so on, right? So what can stakeholders do to bridge this uh, gap? Uh, both of you can sort of uh, chime in on this. See, as a nonprofit, we are dealing with public money and uh, uh, there is no compromise for transparency, right? We need to go out and be absolutely transparent because we're using people's money for people's causes. And uh, there is no two ways of looking at this uh, at all. And the only way out uh, is to only keep increasing the amount of data, uh, the amount of transparency and making everybody who is investing in this cause uh, to be able to understand what he or she uh, uh, is really putting their money into because uh, we are not going to return their money in terms of profits, but we are changing lives on ground and uh, it's important for people to know about it. Uh, it, it it's, it's, a, it's a slightly more complex uh, issue, however, because uh, most other places um, have a clear one-to-one -one ratio of who the customer is. Uh, the customer is the one who's paying for and services are being rendered to the customer. In the NGO segment or this sector, it's a lot more complex. Who is the customer is always a question. There is somebody who's paying for the service. There's somebody else who's receiving the service. There's somebody else who's delivering the service around. And even amongst the ones who are receiving the service, the complexity is huge. Now, in, in, a, in this case of schools, for example, so there could be a donor sitting uh, uh, on the other side of the globe wanting to put money into the schools, uh, which, which is he, he or she is a stakeholder. Uh, the parent of the child who is studying in our model schools is also a stakeholder. The, the teachers are a stakeholder. The Department of Education is a stakeholder. The government is a stakeholder. The, uh, the nonprofit that we are running is a stakeholder. Around Our own staff is a stakeholder. It is more about the complexity of the structure of working uh, than about it being a very simple one-to-one -one exercise. So to your first question, should we be transparent? Absolutely, yes. There is no two ways about it. Um, how is it or why is it that it starts getting a little more complex when dealing with this is because we're talking of a multi-stakeholder management, really, quite literally, right? Uh, the number of people we are dealing with because the child is important. He or she is the one who's directly seeing our product services on the ground. The parent is the second person who sees. The teachers are delivering our mechanism, but they're not on our payrolls, right? Uh, the, the school principals have to work with us. Uh, in spite of not having a, a reporting relationship, but have to be inspired enough to work with us because they want to see a, a different school. So it is the complexity of the stakeholder management which usually makes it difficult and therefore uh, lets uh, a, a perspective on the ground that uh, NGOs need to improve this. Uh, there is no doubt we need to keep doing better on this and we keep striving to uh, keep increasing our efficiency and transparency uh, on the ground. But the system itself is complex and uh, an understanding of this will help things uh, better. Okay. 
So what has your experience been, you know, working with the government? Because, uh, you know, people are definitely very cynical. Uh, they think of the government as this mammoth thing that moves very, very slowly and is highly inefficient, very bureaucratic and all of those things, right? But uh, um, really, I mean, for a country our size, if you have to cause any real tangible change at scale, uh, there is no escaping the government. You have to work within the systems of the government. Uh, so, Binu, could you talk about a few things uh, uh, that you have experienced and that could be useful for people uh, who would want to do similar in initiatives uh, like you? Right. So, uh, yeah, Roshan, I would start with thanking the government for supporting the initiatives that we are doing at this point in time at Balitzer. Um, uh, it is a mammoth task. I completely understand there are different departments, different layers of people we need to touch base with and then uh, begin the work. But as a policy, uh, since 2009, uh, we both decided, rather the entire team decided that we will, we do not want to create a parallel system uh, against the government. We would want to work alongside with them, right? So they have done X number of things already, which have been there in the, in the system. We would want to be a part of them and enhance it further. Right. There is no point of reinventing the wheel when the wheel already exists. We can add in more frills and also ensure that there is more impact on ground. Our experience has been wonderful, as I said. We, uh, to be candid, we do not exchange. There is no exchange of money over here. The only request we always had uh, with any of the government departments has been, you give us access to the government schools and let us work over there. The entire blueprint is on the table. You have a look at it and, and let's do the work together so that there is more impact on ground. Yeah, uh, we need more people to start looking and envisioning systems like this. And, and then there is no looking back over there, yeah. Right. So uh, in your opinion, how has the attitudes of people itself changed uh, in the time that you've uh, been in touch with this? Right. So, uh, you know, I, I find particularly that the youth of today are a lot more aspirational, uh, a lot more outward looking as well. Uh, right out of the survival mindset uh, beyond that, in fact, right to uh, positively affect change around them. Right. So if they're seeing that, especially with the millennial and the uh, generations uh, uh, younger than that. Right. So. Uh, what is the kind of volunteer support you've seen um, and any experiences that you'd like to share on that front? We've had a phenomenal uh, success rate, uh, Russian. Uh, typically, uh, what the model that we envision is, is, is a shared success model, right? This is not just our success. Uh, this is not a balanced success story. This is uh, the success story for Bharat itself. Right. Uh, when we do this at the school, uh, the children are succeeding in this. It's a success of the parents. It's a success of the Department of Education. Uh, when volunteers come down to work with us at the school, uh, whether it's about painting a school campus, is that uh, it's about teaching uh, them. It's about leveraging technology. It's about running mentoring programs. It is a shared success that we uh, that we're very clear about. So what we really envision is a global community of people coming together, uh, aspiring for an education for all model, right? Uh, because only when we start breaking this up and saying, hey, is this your work or my work, does it start becoming uh, a challenge? We, we've had instances, uh, usually, I mean, this is before uh, the pandemic hit, where uh, during the school vacations, we purely used volunteers alone and completely painted school campuses. The entire school campuses have... Uh, uh, work with individuals directly or volunteers from corporates 
who show up, like you know, say, get about 40 volunteers uh, to show up every alternate day, um, get into a school, paint the classrooms out, and I'm talking of large schools, 25, 30 classroom uh, campuses coming together. Uh, one of the other things that we do outside of schooling is also work uh, on disaster response, uh, which is affecting children and their families. And these programs are purely run by volunteer support, right? Uh, and uh, in 2019, we did about uh, 500 tons of material that was shipped uh, to various parts of Karnataka and Kerala, purely volunteer driven. Um, I would encourage you to look at uh, some of our videos on the YouTube channel, which will show you some of this. Uh, 2020, we've done about three, uh, about 3,000 tons of uh, material. This year, we've just about started off, and all of this wouldn't be possible without uh, absolute volunteer commitment and support. Right. Uh so, you know, we call this uh, the Long India series. We're talking to people who are, uh, you know, optimistic about India and affecting change positively, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, the the question we ask on this uh, uh, podcast uh, is, you know, what are you optimistic for going forward? I know it's a very broad question, uh, but any thoughts on that? Uh, any things that you're optimistic for? I think both of you could talk. Um. I, I think we are in the brink of um, changing the narrative. Uh, India has role of being a Vishwaguru has begun. Uh, we are seeing starting to see a brink uh, of change here. Uh, at the moment, things look bleak. We are uh, hit by the pandemic, but I think our spirit, uh, the Bharatiya spirit is something that's always helped us bounce back. Uh, every time we are faced with a challenge, we're pushed to the wall. Uh, we will come back and we will come back uh, stronger. Right. Uh, a couple of days ago, we were uh, last year, we were down with PPE kits. Uh, we, we barely had uh, PPE protective gear. Uh, in a matter of days and weeks, we were able to turn it around and we had the largest supply of that. Uh, right now, as we speak, we are battling with um, a, 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 a deficit of uh, oxygen uh, and, and a whole bunch of other uh, systems. But I think the spirit of the people to come together and fight this out, uh, especially when you're pushed to a corner and uh, emerge stronger, I think that's something we're looking forward to. When the pandemic is behind us in, in a few uh, weeks, months from now, after all these waves of pandemic are done, we would like uh, for a lot more focus to go into public education because that's going to really change the narrative for India. You know, uh, we aren't quite looking at the fruits right now. Uh, education is working on the soil. We keep working on the soil, uh, keep nurturing it the way it has to. Uh, the seeds are already planted. Uh, they are our children. They will start bearing fruit. And, and this is something that is going to be a fruitful journey for us uh, and for the world. Right. Binu, any thoughts? Yeah. Uh, so just to add on to what Ramesh said, it's uh, that uh, there is so much of positivity uh, in the entire ecosystem that we have been born and grown up at in. Uh, this positivity, whether it is a, a child or a teenager or uh, uh, someone elderly at home, they keep on motivating you every now and then. And that gives us uh, a nudge and uh, gives us the, the positivity and gives us that uh, thirst to move forward. Uh, that is what uh, Bharat and India is all about. And um, we look forward to uh, moving away uh, from this deadly pandemic and uh, let's see what best we can do in the near future with respect to education for the larger crowd. Yeah. Thanks. Wonderful. So yeah, I mean, education is one of those things that affects uh, generational change, right? Uh, and it's 
definitely one of the most important investments a country can make. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, uh, Ramesh and Binu. Thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast again. I think uh, people like yourself, uh, you know, inspire a lot of optimism in all of us. Uh, so thank you for the great work that you guys are doing. And, uh, uh, you know, before we close, uh, how can people get involved with uh, Balutsav? Uh, you know, uh, would you like to, you know, share some links or initiatives or any, anything like that? Roshan, thank you so much for having us over. It was wonderful speaking to you uh, about this and uh, talking about the work we do to be able to go out and uh, hopefully inspire more people to join this uh, tribe of uh, change makers in the country. Uh, all details of what we do is available on our website, uh, balutsev.org, B-A-L-U-T-S-A-V.org. I would also welcome you uh, to come out and see some of the schools we work with uh, uh, so that you can see the changes firsthand. Right. All by yourself. Uh, maybe uh, after the pandemic settles down, the next few weeks, we would love for you to come down and see. And uh, for all the uh, listeners of Bharat Pata, uh, if you're in India and you'd love to come down and see the work we do firsthand, we would love to showcase that across to you. Right? Uh, Balutsev uh, on social media, on uh, the web, uh, is quite active with at least daily updates going about the work we do. Uh, we would love for you to see that and keep updated. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Ramesh. Thank you, Vinu. Thank you for being Thanks, on. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bharat Vartha podcast. If you want to see more content like this, then don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We started Bharat Vartha to facilitate long-form discussions on politics, policy, and culture. We don't necessarily endorse anything that was said in this episode. If you wish to offer us feedback, do reach out to us on social media. We are at Bharatvartha on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You could also get in touch with us on our website, www.bharatvartha.in. The links are in the description below. Until next time, stay safe, take care, and jai.